Welcome to Writers Talking TV, brought to you by the Writers Guild of Canada. I'm Matt Watts, writer, actor, and admirer of today's guest. That's none other than Bruce McCullough, whose name is almost always preceded by of Kids in the Hall fame. But he's also of young, drunk punk fame, and I don't just mean his childhood. Young, drunk punk will be shown on CBC TV starting on October 6th. The show has been described as a rough and hilarious look back at a simpler time and a complicated age, and at two young rebels determined to stay true to themselves and fight against the scratchy caftan of conformity. Okay, here we go. Like a young William Shatner, he took the stage. Should we shake hands? And yes. Do it like, Thank Hi, you so much. How are you? Photo op. Are we live tweeting tonight? Okay. Um, hello, and thank you so much for coming. I, it means a lot to me, so thank you. I'm just cracking my water quickly. I have to do my water. All right. Do I have to do any sort of, for the podcast, do I have to like do any kind of introduction to Bruce because that doesn't count that's not the, the official and if you're a little older and you don't know what a podcast is it's this new thing where people talk forever <laughs> you do someone's podcast do. Like, we just do you, you, usually two hours okay I don't understand how people have time to listen to those things they're I don't so think, long I, you know I fast forward I have, a, I have a thing on my computer I can fast forward uh, trying to get my name and I have a thing that finds <laughs> my name so it's looking for mansions like I do whenever I get someone's suicide note. Yeah. Did you mention me? Did you mention me? Did yes. you mention me? Oh, you did. Oh. Oh, it's but my not fault. in a glowing way. Yeah. <laughs> in a in a blame way. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so we're here, obviously, with Bruce McCullough. Well, suicide and writing are both the ultimate uh, selfish act. I. <laughs> I don't know if I see it like that. I mean, they're both cries for help, for sure. Um, so how are you? I'm good. Yeah? Yeah. I'm with my, I'm with my brothers and sisters. So how, why wouldn't I be good? The, uh, the kin of writership? Yeah, no, listen, we all share the same pain. Um, we're we never all, out in groups, which well, is unusual. No, we're all, it's have weird for us room. all sitting together in a crowded theater. Um, but we've all shared at the, stared at the recipe cards. Yeah. So we're all the same. Yeah, no, yeah. and we all know the agony of staying up late and thinking I have to write something, or the excuse of, uh, no, no, it's good, it's good. I'm just going to tinker with it a little bit before <laughs> I show it to you, yeah. when really you yeah. have written nothing. Nothing, yes. Yeah. Um, so let's talk a little bit, let's start with uh, your career, your career, and uh, how you got started. I, I think, I think uh, Young Drunk Punk, which is what we're here to talk about yes. tonight, uh, is is interesting because you are you do have a bit of a it's, first it's based on you right it's a, it's a memoir ish kind of thing it's similar to the book but you're also uh, I always think of you as the kind of rock star of the kids in the hall if without like you're the more rebellious one you well were, put you, you were the you were the cool one right uh, and so when I hear about your upbringing in Calgary as a sort of a punk outsider kind of kid. It totally fits right. everything. Well, I think when I d- uh, worked with Kids in the Hall, it was weird because I had never seen Saturday Night Live. I mean, I knew it existed. Uh, I, you know, I spent my formative time with rock music and with, uh, you know, as an outsider, as I still am in my 50s, um, it was all outsider stuff. And I don't know, Carol Burnett was funny, but she wasn't an outsider. So I think I, I sought all that weird stuff. And for me, I could have ended up, I think, in some weird 
theater company that had weird music and people were, you know, putting flour all over themselves and saying weird lines and stuff. You know, because I think I, I really thought I wanted to be a beat poet at one point. You had a flair for, like, the dramatic. Like the sort I, don't, of angst. I didn't have a flair for it. Well, I don't mean flair, <laughs> but I mean, I mean you, you, you were attracted to sort of angst and drama and, like... Well, and is that right? Or no? Yes, and of course, I, when I, I grew up at a time when there, you know, there was no other culture. There was music, and then there was kind of like stuff on the radio, and there, you know, there was bands that would come through, but TV was kind of very weird. There wasn't a lot, you know, I don't know what was happening in Canadian TV then, probably Littlest Hobo or something. So there wasn't like, that's my thing that right. I could find anywhere other than in true counterculture. And I think now, perhaps Kids in the Hall or lots of other shows be it broad city or whatever it's like counterculture people go yeah that's me that's that's my that's my oxygen well you were definitely i mean kids in the hall uh which i'm sure a lot of people would love to focus on i don't want to but uh it was a very counterculture sketch show i mean uh for me at the time uh as a young sketch performer um it was it, it was unlike anything that had been on television sketch wise uh and i understand from uh, other friends that you had a huge part in things like uh, the uh, interstitials, the opening credits, the the sort of eight millimeter shooting, the the, the, the sort of look and feel of the show. You were friends with uh, Shadowy Man on a Shadowy right. Planet. You brought them in, so you had a, a a heart, a huge part in designing the sort of tone of that sketch show. Well, as, I don't, as far as I understand. Well, I don't want to take credit for that, but I've always been the guy who goes, "What's the music between scenes?" And even like, guys, we can't be seen before the show when we're right. doing a live show because we have to be cooler than that. And, you know, not that we were f- the first, you know, probably we're the original nerd troupe. But um, I've always been, and maybe that's why, you know, it's great actually to star in this show that I'm young drunk punk, but I've always thought like, oh, what's the music like? What's the thing? What's the lighting? Oh, my God, the lights are late. So right. that part has always been, I don't know if it's given me comfort with my weird brain, but it's always been... You know, I wish I could be more like Scott Thompson, who just wants to say what he wants to say and score kind of as a performer. I'm happier when I write a joke for someone else, writing a joke for Mark McKinney, which I've done a lot of, and it works. It's like way better than when I, you know, had a joke that works. So there's something about kind of stepping back and looking at all of it, like as a young man from the ages of 14 to 19, where all I did was listen to music and read liner notes. You just think about it. So that's what I find. That's what I mean. I feel like there's sort of a deeper thing going on in with what you're doing. So I'll try to focus this in a bit. I'm not used to this, by the way, because um, you met Mark very early on in Calgary. In your book, you talk quite a bit about Mark as yes. being improvisers in Calgary. Yeah. Young Drunk Punk is also the title of a book, by the way, which is excellent. So if you have uh, my book it. is called uh, Let's Start a Riot. Oh, is that? Um, I thought yeah, it was called, but oh, it was Let's Start a Riot. But it's like a marketing shitstorm. Um, because right, I, do a, I do a, a two-man show with uh, Brian Conley of Shadowy Man or Shadowy Planet uh, called Young Drunk Punk. So everyone is so confused. Which is this? You know. I take it back. So yeah. the book is called Let's Start a Riot. It's an excellent book. I read the book. I just didn't look at He's the cover. He's worked really hard. Now, I read the book. I told, when I ran into you a couple well, months research, ago. Research, guys. Come on. Uh, let's research. We're writers. I, I didn't read it for this. Yeah. I read it, and I can prove that by not remembering a lot of the details, except how much I enjoyed it. Because, you know, uh, how many books do you read? Like, you read books, and at this age, they start to... Anyway. All seem the same, yeah. 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 Your book was... 
It was like Lonesome Dove, Let's Start a Riot. I was like, which happened yeah. in Lonesome Dove? <laughs> what happened in Let's Start a Riot? Was it he punch his dad in Lonesome Dove? Or no, was that, that was me. Okay. <laughs> um, uh, but so, yeah, you and, and Mark started as improvisers at Loose Moose. Right. Uh, but you weren't writing, you were improvising. Well, we started improvising, and then as, that was the time in my life where everything happened really fast. And it's like, oh, my God, I've been improvising for two months, and I haven't made it yet. Yeah. You know, <laughs> and you're older, and it takes, everything takes ten years. Um, but we started writing sketches um, and put, did them free after the show. Like, go, hey, everybody, you, I know you just had two hours of comedy, but do you want to see some comedy sketches? And, like, a few people would stay, and we, would, we just started doing comedy sketches uh, after that. And so did, how, how was that in terms of writing? You, did it feel like a natural thing for you? Did you and Mark sit down and write them out on paper? Was it... it well, Mark always likes to rehearse. I'm always a guy who goes, you know, I have an idea. If Elvis were my landlord, that's the sketch. That's what it's called. And what are the beats of it? And Mark would always be like, what do I play in it? Or, you know, if Naked for Jesus, who's, who are these characters? It's like I was more attracted to the idea. So I would always have ideas... I've always had an, a lot of ideas, and then Mark had always flushed them out right. by giving them, you know, life. And then that, then you guys came to Toronto. Yes. You met Dave and Kevin, mm-hmm. and Paul Bellini, and Gary Campbell. Yeah. Or Gary Campbell was with you in Calgary. He was one of the, our original Right, people. so Gary Campbell is also a writer on Young Drunk Pond. And Frank Van Keeken. And Frank Van Keeken. Yeah. Uh, Brian Hart, was he part of that? No, we met him a little bit later. Okay, so... Um, you guys came to Toronto. You started... Dad, quit talking about your old friends. No, no, no. <laughs> I, I, you know... I'm trying to do context here, but it's what's weird is I know all these guys from when I started doing stand-up, guys like Brian and Frank right. were at the Laugh Resort and stuff, and I was watching them. They were headlining, and I was an amateur. So they were, they, they were still writing on your show, but they'd still do stand-up. Right. It's, it's such a weird, small community, like going to a taping of the show and seeing someone like Boyd Banks do, op- warm up right. the audience, or, or Tunney, or guys like that. It was such a... You know, it was a very small community. It was a small community. And also, we were part of the community. We were the lucky ones who got, you know, kind of signed. But there were Alan George and, you know, all these other people who were Sandra Seamus. There was all these other people who were amazing around us who were kind of our contemporaries, Bruce Hunter, all these people. And then it was kind of us who, because there's a, obviously there's a power in groups and we had a name and, you know, that... It sort of was us who kind of moved up. Yeah, and then, and then you and Mark went and worked on SNL for one yes. year in '85. Yeah, uh, came back, did the pilot, and then the show exploded. And uh, I mean, we we could talk about kids. I personally, I think it's been covered. Right. Everybody here knows. We're like you know, you all love it. But let's talk about the stuff that happened after kids. Is that all right? Yeah. Okay. So uh, after Fucking Brain egg. Candy. Yep. Uh, you did Dog Park. Yeah. That was your first feature film. Yes, it was, sir. And how was that experience? Well, I think, you know, the hard part is, and I say, you know, being in groups, uh, and it's sort of the conversations we have or, you know, when I have had lunch with Dave Thomas or something, which is, you know, when you're in a group, you think, it's like you think you're in college and then you're going to graduate and there's going to be these cool jobs for you. And you don't realize you're kind of saddled with your student loan. And... It's not so great, and you're going to miss your mates a little bit. And I think the people that are attracted to groups, like Kevin McDonald will say, I want to be in a group. I want to be in a group. You know, Mark McKinney, who leads things and is very great at it, loves to be in a group, loves to have the, the conversation. A lot of comedians do. So I think I'm kind of a little work pig. That was my, one of my uh, nicknames in the troupe. Hey, where's work pig? Um, <laughs> 
uh, you know, I, I did a scene where I, I ripped out my heart and I screamed at it, get back to work when I was having a heart attack, um, which was me based on thinking what I was like. Um, so I think after the show was over, we all kind of wandered through the hinterland a little bit, not knowing what to do. Right. And, uh, you know, I think I thought I wanted to be Richard Linkletter, um, but I didn't really have those specific skills. Right. Um, and so it took me a little time to find my, my way in through the, the industry, you know? Because Dog Park was, that was, was that Canadian or was that American? I mean, no, it was it, Canadian. We, we sold it quite nicely uh, out of uh, TIFF and uh, it was in America as well. So remember it was shot here because you actually shot it in Bellwoods. That yeah. was the Dog Park. And then, uh, then there was Superstar, which was a big American SNL yeah, not big though. It was like an, uh, I think a ten million dollar film or something. It was by like, Canadian standards. That's yeah, but it wasn't like you know. And also the thing, the great thing about our show was, even when we did Brain Candy, it's like we had more extras in our in our films, you know, as kids in the hall than we did when we were doing Brain Candy. It's like oh, you thought it was a, a feature film, it was going to be gigantic, and so we realized that we were had it pretty nice at CBC. Yeah. I say that as I look at my CBC exec. Um, Superstar feels very much like your film. I mean, tonally, uh, stylistically, it's, you know, you had, it's been years since I've seen it, but it has the uniform cars, all those sort of little details. Yeah, it, it's they pretty all... weird. I mean, it was one of those things that was like, okay, nobody can do this but me. <laughs> Fuck, I gotta do it. Um, but, you know, it was a weird film. It's, you know. It's it's your film. It feels like a Bruce McCullough it film. It does. Yeah. Yeah. And I didn't realize that you didn't make those, that actually films and it's like the kids in the hall with brain candy. I mean, we were we, we follow our fetish wherever it took us. Yeah. You know, we didn't go, Oh, you better put Head Crusher in your movie and then it can be a big movie. We put fucking Cancer Boy in our movie. Yeah. And just followed it where it went and now we're doing a satire with none of the characters you've ever seen on TV because we thought that would be cool and that would succeed too. I feel like everything that you've done has for the most part, I can't think of anything. I'm sure you can correct me, but you've been fairly uncompromised in your work. Like, uh, you, everything feels like it's yours. It, there, there's your stamp is always on it. I don't. It's not like unless you've done commercials that I didn't know right. about. It'd be like, oh yeah, I know that Arby's commercial. Uh, McCullough directed that. Well, uh, I would like to think so, but <laughs> you know, maybe if you read, you know, one of my CBS pilots that I wrote or something, I think there was also part of a journey. Um, for me, kind of coming to do Young Drunk Punk, which is I developed a lot of stuff in uh, America and, and sold scripts, you know, in L.A. And it's like, you're in ABC, and they go, we want it. Okay, good. And then you're at Fox, and they go, we want, we want, do you, oh, do you have another one? We want that one. And so it was like, oh, this is great. I love, I love this because I'm a work pig. Um, but that is a big development kind of hell. It's kind of a beautiful golden jail. And there's something about me writing about my life, writing about myself, writing this book about my weird stories, um, stage show, that, and this series kind of became uh, true and real. I mean, and everything else I, I, I wrote I thought was really great, and I worked really hard on it, and I thought this was the one or something. But there's something uh, like an honest ringing of the bell with, with this material that um, I think made it work. And how did it, how did it come about? Like what – so the – Let's start a riot. Is uh, it, it's? I mean, it's hard to describe. It's a memoir, but it's not. A, it's memoir-ish. It's like anecdotes from your life uh, in the style of a memoir, and where it's it's like little short essays. Right. It's, it's, like, it's David Sedaris like. I mean, it's 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 one of the best uh, 
memoir type books that I've read. I laughed out loud. So my, I told you when I, after I read it, I said I had to give it. Of all people, I gave it to an ex girlfriend because I thought she'd appreciate it the most. I called her up and I said, "You have to read this book. We're not talking, but read this book. You're gonna love it." And then the restraining order. Yeah. Well, yeah. you know. Okay, it was just an excuse to talk to her. But anyway, yeah. she loved the book. Um, uh, so, did that come first, or did the development of the series come first? Well, it's actually a good story about how things, uh, you know, happen. I mean, it, when I used to talk to young people, and I'm going to say you're all young people, um, I used to say, "Pick a job, like pick an industry. Direct commercials, direct TV, be a writer in a thing." And I don't feel that anymore. I feel like follow a small creative impulse, and if it's true and honest and you like it, it, will, it can go really far. Um, you know, the series exists because I was asked to write a, uh, a piece for the Calgary Herald, and I wrote a weird story, and then I wrote another one. And then they, Sketchfest asked me to do a, a stage show, and I said, well, I better have a name for it. And so I put a name to it, and it was, uh, oh, yeah, let's, uh, let's call it Young Drunk Punk. Because I have to have a name, because I think I have to get on cue. And if I get on cue, and I have a name for my show, people will come, and I'm going to be able to sell a book. Right. And I've, ne- that, I've never had that plan. But it was f- the logically following of an energy of that that kind of worked. And then an executive who was, used to be at Rogers saw that and said, that, should be, that part should be a stage show. And then we sold a book. So it was like the material was honest. So I kind of cynically put it together, which never really works. And, but because I was following, I think, an honest spark. Yeah. Not trying to write a hit where young people are talking about dating or something. Do you also feel that you've come to a part in your life where you're a little bit more reflective on your youth and your past? Because, I mean, there is a lot in, in the book. It's, it's not just the, sh- the show. Right. It's it's it, it covered. I mean, there are anecdotes in the book that you've used in the show, but it's it's so much more. It's you know about your marriage and your kids, and it it's it's a it, it's a very specific thing to sort of look at your life and go. I'm just going to write about my life. I'm going to write about my past, uh, and I don't really feel like you. I think you had things in your work before that were influenced by your opinions and your attitudes, but it's very personal what you're doing now. Well, yeah, and I think I just got to that place after a while, you know. I think at a certain point when you stop being a rock star and stop, like, having a big development deal, you just go, oh, what do I really want to do? And, like, what do I like to do? I like to write weird stuff. I like to have another person there. And and this is about me. And so writing about myself was just, I don't know, it, it just felt like it was at the right time in my life to do a lot of stuff that was, um, you know, excavating my you know and I I think me talking about my weird family or my my first love whose jean jacket smell I can still think about um, isn't just about me it's about everybody who had a first love so I have to trick myself thinking because I ain't that interesting but I am because it's reflective of of everyone but you are and this is we were talking at our little sort of quasi dinner that I I was going to tell you about the theme of your work and you could, would correct me. You said, because I sort of told you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I believe that most writers have, uh, whether it's an unconscious or conscious uh, theme about what they like to write. For, I'll, I'll use myself for an example briefly, uh, which is that I have a real issue with uh, found families because I never really had a family growing up. But I, I, I seem to gravitate, and I love writing about uh, groups of people that form a sort of faux family. Right. Like they believe in it. It's, it's more important. This fake family is more important to them than their real family. Um, you seem to write a lot of things about really well-intentioned but sort of naive, not idiots, but it's, it's, it's people who think they're doing the right thing, but they 
fall on their faces trying to do the right thing. And I th and you said that you were a humanist. Yeah, sorry. No, no, um, no. I, I, I was trying to sum yeah, it up. I was yeah. trying to say that in a way that sounded like had a summary and also had a point at the end, but I realized it was just trailing off. And, it was like, and also you kind of write about this thing. Well, no, I mean, I, you know, it's... I always... Well-intentioned idiots. That's what I'm saying. Well, I'm, aren't we all? I mean... Well, that's what I mean. That's who I am. I'm the weird little man. And it's like... You know, I, I don't know. I've always that's why. Oh, I didn't watch Saturday Night Live. Saturday Night Live. I couldn't give a fuck. You know, I'm I'm interested in some weird person. You know, Mark doing a monologue. It all started with one truck. Like, I'm in on that man. Because who is this weird guy who? And he got another truck. So, I I'm into the weird people and their stories. And you know, in the '70s, I was finding notes on the street. The you know letters of people and that's way more interesting. So I think I think the weird human archaeology is way more interesting to me. As you know, as Freud says, you know, nothing human is foreign to me. I I love our weirdnesses, and I that's you know. Yeah, and I think that that is what uh, you've put a lot into with the show, which we're going to watch very soon. Um, but that's I, I think that's that's basically what I'm saying is I think you have a fascination with people and uh, you you always believe the best in them, regardless of what their weirdness is. They're still, you, 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 you handle everyone delicately and uh, you, you're not big on attacking or making fun of people. It's all kind of like a beautiful, it, it's still the best of people come through. Yeah, and they can be out of their fucking minds. Yeah, yeah, but you still yeah. handle that with, with care and yeah. love. Yeah, like I can watch Say Yes to the Dress and I can get a little misty when she picks the dress. You know, I can watch that shit forever. Right. You know, but I might not watch an American sitcom. <laughs> well, because they might not actually have a heart to them or well, be saying anything. Well, there's 19 people writing one line. I don't know. They're just trying to yeah. crank jokes out as yeah. opposed to actually say something about human beings. Yeah. Right. That's fair. Well, on that note, why don't we watch the episode and then we'll come back. Woo! There you go. That was that was an episode of the show. It certainly was. And uh, the the uh, central uh, the one of the storylines about uh, your father, play, played by you, trying to get his son to beat him up. Right. That's an anecdote and a story in your book. Yeah. So I assume that's based on something that actually happened. Uh, kind of. Yeah. Um, and it was funny because at dinner you you asked me why'd you pick that one? <laughs> like I like the show, but why'd you pick that one? Um, and I think for that reason that it was kind of interesting for me how something that happened to me that was in my book became this show. And I actually did go to see The Clash in 1980. This didn't happen, but it sort of represents what happened. And I also like just how I shoved a lot of story in there. I said, yes. I can get all that story in there. No, no, it's a lot of story. Yeah, it's yeah. very personal. It's very uh, – it, it's – the thing that I really like about the show is that you set a very specific tone and the world is very clear and uh, the characters are all very clear. It's a very, very well-crafted uh, world, which is uncommon, right? Because a lot of people just think of jokes over style or substance and it's, you, you, you believe the world, you believe the characters. And it obviously comes from you. I assume that Ian is based on you and the father is based on your father and so on and so on. Well, not exactly based, but I think... 
Yes. I mean, even when I was doing Kids in the Hall show, the first thing I do is go on, on the set and go, oh, he wouldn't have that poster, but he would have that. How come we, there should be a, a thing of change here? And, you know, and so all of that was really important to me. And I think, you know, often when people create TV, they just go open on the restaurant. A waitress comes over. Can I take your order? And like, who's the waitress? And where did she come from? And where are you at? And all that stuff. So I think with something like this, to have a place and things you remember and, you know, ordering pizza and it's like two hours are free um, back then. Like all that stuff is just like you can remember it. Bing, bing, bing. Oh, dial a bottle. Oh, fuck, I haven't written the dial a bottle episode yet. I'm dying to. So, the you know... I, I did a show on ABC called Carpoolers. I only had 13 episodes. But I was like, it's guys carpooling to work, and they share their problems. And it's like, oh, I'll have all kinds of ideas. It's like after episode six, it was like, okay, what else can happen to the carpoolers? <laughs> okay, well, guys, what happened to you today? And so I think with this, there's so much for me and Gary Campbell, who is one of my, who's my right-hand man on this. Um, it's like, oh, I remember that. You did that thing. And I think there's stuff there that you take that you, can help you, and then you throw it away. And you make it funnier or not as sad or, or, you know, that person did that. But, you know, you use it in a way. But it's there because it's real. And how much of your dad is in your dad that you're playing your dad? Um, well, he was a, you know, I, I mean, the interesting thing, I, you know, when you're a kid and you, you battle the world, you think your parents are these evil ogres. And then only as you get older, you know, you kind of can view them with love a little bit and go, well, my dad was... M- was more lost than I was. And so that was, my, that was my sort of my ethic in that character, which is a guy who really wants to help his son, but he just doesn't know how. There's a real sweetness and love for that character. It's one of, it's, it, um, you know, without paying too much lip service, I think that it's, it's one of the most, it's one of the favorite, my favorite things of your, it's a very subtle performance. Uh, there's, a, there's an episode where uh, your character is desperately trying to prove that he's not racist. And it's so great because it tackles racism in a way that's contextualized so you know the jokes can fly and you can you're you're playing someone who's trying desperately to be not racist but in turn is incredibly racist like it's well and the the you know it really is the time i mean right that too you know we say pakistani in the show but there was a different time when that you wouldn't say that right um so but what a great thing to talk about yeah in a way you know, the first, this Pakistani guy dating my daughter. Of course, I don't care. I, I, I like, like everybody. And, yeah. you know, that whole, that whole thing that everybody's dad has always done. No, I, I, I think, but I think that nuance and that, that sort of overarching trying to do the good thing, that's, it's, it's a really uh, interesting uh, character choice. And, and so that's why I wonder if there was something about writing the show that was maybe a little cathartic in terms of seeing your father and your parents and your upbringing and, and, and putting your own personal lens on it. Like, okay, this is how I see it. It wasn't... Because, I mean, Ian and Shanky aren't uh, the brightest kids. Right. Their, their intentions are so pure and they think they're doing the right thing by being out there and they're trying to get people to listen to punk music because they think it's the most important thing yes. in the world. <laughs> but you're watching them and going, it's, you guys are just kids and you don't know any better. Right. But it's really sweet how hard they're trying. Right. So I just, I, I, I assume that's all intentional. Well, I, I'm trying, you know, I mean, I, I love those guys. They're, they're my, you know, they're all my, it's all my favorite part of the show. Allie's my favorite, you know. Helen's my, but it's like, I think there's, there's kind of sweet little, you know, fucked up people in all of that, yes. you know? And for Lloyd, for me, it was interesting because I wrote the show 
and I didn't, I, you know, I, I thought maybe Sean Cullen would be Lloyd, you know? Oh, really? And then it was like, oh, you're going to be Lloyd, right? It's like, mm. And because after the kids in the hall, I haven't really acted. And, you know, the, I've done the odd thing when someone asks me to do a Paul Feig to ask to do a Danis film or whatever. But it's like, it's not what I do. And then it was like, it became really fun when I, we knew I was going to do it and what am I good at. And I kind of I, I kind of understood it a little bit. And, you know, that was one of the epiphanies of doing the show for me was like, I kind of like acting, you know, because I've always thought, ah, oh, fuck, anybody can act. Oh, you're good at you it. You know, I mean, you got to get a writer gets up at four in the morning and writes the script. But you know, any anybody can be on set. You know, asking for a cappuccino. And also, uh, Tracy is in it as well. How yes. Did, how was that? Well, uh, the, the woman who plays my wife is actually my wife. Um, it was a complicated thing. I thought there would be a thousand actresses who would be just so funny and great at that role and then it was like we weren't kind of finding someone and my my wife said well i'd like to audition and i said <laughs> well i don't know they're not going to let me do that they're not you know maybe you can play you know waitress number two or something um they'll kill me if you and she auditioned and it was like somehow and i think i kind of wrote a version of her and her mother um she was perfect for it, and she actually kind of beat everybody out. And they, they phoned me, and they said, would it be okay if your wife played your wife? <laughs> and it was like the sweetest moment of my life to go, you're going to be Helen. That's great. That's great. Um, so let's backtrack. The, you had done the play, Young Drunk Punk. Yeah. Now, did you approach Rogers and CBC, or did they approach you? Oh, no. It was a bidding war. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, I got lucky. They, all, they wanted to do it. And it was like, at first when... Um, uh, Claire, uh, who was the Rogers executive, and then said, uh, I think uh, the part in the 80s where you're, you're trying to find yourself would be a really great show. And I said, no, I don't think it would. <laughs> because, of course, why can someone tell you what a good idea is? And then I went away and I thought, yeah, that is a really good idea. Yeah. So I, I kind of got lucky with that. And then there was, you know, I, I, Sally Cat was a great uh, friend and admirer of, of each of each other and and she really wanted to participate as well and obviously cbc is my spiritual home so the fact that you know both places could could do it was obviously unique kind of confusing but uh wonderful for me did they order it to pilot did you do a pilot first no i didn't so that it was, it was a pilot script and then they ordered it to 13 episodes yeah which is a much better way of doing it this is we're out of the pilot thing i think I don't know. Oh, Are we? You, well, I, you. So this is my question, and it's uh, another question. You've, you've, you have been back and forth to the states. Yes. So uh, you were working in the states for a while, and then you did uh, the play here. Uh, what, what about Canada appealed to you? It's sort of a generic question. Right. We all know the answer to right. it because there's freedom and blah 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 right. blah. But I'm going to ask it anyway. Um, c- coming back to Canada to do a series uh, was that. Was that something that you really wanted to do? Did you want to take a break from the states, or was it like, let's see how this works? Let's no, give it a I shot. think th- I think this material emerged for me, and I, w- I wanted to do it. And it was like, even to my wife, I you know we've w- wanted to move back to Toronto for a while. It's like, no, we we got to shoot in Calgary, you know. And it was right. like, but I really wanted to do it, and I think it was the material dragged me. I, I follow material or an idea to wherever it goes, and so it wasn't like, oh, I'm tired of of ABC, I should, I should come to Canada. But there is, you know, I, I do want to move back here and I do want to bring my family back here. So, and it's also, you know, I, I feel maybe it's not the greatest Canadian show that's ever been on Young Drunk Punk, but I felt like I want to do a show that's Canadian. I think there's a lot of Canadian shows that are like in, set in the city and people are talking about dating and don't call her for two days or she'll think you're too anxious. And it's like, 
fuck, I've seen that joke in a thousand, you know. So I, I w- I'm so attracted to the idea of, you know, the conversation that CBC Radio and at its best CBC TV is trying to have with this country um, to be part of that conversation. Because yeah. it's where I came from and it's w- what I want to keep doing. Yeah, I agree. It's sort of you want to contribute to the cultural identity somehow. And, yeah. and obviously growing up in Calgary in the 80s is a part of history and you're capturing it. Um, which is, this is a sort of a side question, but I'm sort of obsessed with this because in the show, and it's not in this episode, there's an episode where um, you get a Space Invaders yep. uh, game. And this is something I was watching and noticing in the show a lot. You had no, you, licensing wasn't an issue. You had games, songs, uh, things that normally in Canada, uh, producers and networks flag, like, uh, they're like, no, 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 you can't use that. You have to use, you can't use the actual thing. But somehow, I'm watching a show and there's no sound alikes or there's no... No, we, we got lucky. I mean, especially with music. Um, for some reason, you know, I mean, the, one of the sweetest things about this, this show is that all the punk rock that I loved when I was 17 and 18 years old, the Demix and the Diodes, you know, and all these people... They, because it was me, and because it was maybe they're at the time in their life when they want their stuff out there. We got their stuff for nothing. That's it great. wasn't like, oh, uh, you know, talk to you know, Sony Music. It was. I got a letter from uh, the singer from the Vile Tones, Nazi Dog, <laughs> thanking me for putting his music <laughs> in my show. It's like, fuck, Brian. I got a, I got a, I got a note from Nazi Dog. So. Um, yeah, that's but we we got lucky that way. That's it's but it's unique. It is it is a unique thing. Yeah. And, and if it had been an American show, maybe they would have tried to charge you a little bit more. Yes, of course. Right. So yeah. anyway, um, uh, 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 how did it work? Um, you got you got the pickup. Then the writers I have listed here that I I know some of them. Um, you put a room together. I'm assuming it was in Toronto. At least I know the recent. It was recently in Toronto. So the yes. first season was written here. Yeah. We started here and then we moved a couple people out. And uh, it was you, Kurt Smeaton. Woo! Um, Jonathan Sobol, do I have that name? He was yep. in Calgary. Yeah. Scott, and oh, sorry. Scott Montgomery. Gary Campbell. Yes. And then you had uh, Kayla Lorette. The great Kayla Lorette. The, the amazing Kayla Lorette is a junior writer in yep. the show. Um, so how did the... how? Talk about your process. How did that work in terms of putting the room together? Had you, did you have a pilot written? I did. So the pilot was written, but then it was, okay, let's outline 12 episodes and go to draft. And yeah. Like a general writing room. Yeah. And did you do it in an office? Did you do it in a house? Well, we got a house. And I've, you know, ever since I was even working at the Kids in the Hall, I've always said, like, let's start at 10. And we always start at 10. We don't, you know, with Scott Thompson, you start at 10 and you have to hear this story about his boyfriend for 45 minutes before you can start. But for me, I'm, I'm a guy who doesn't waste time. So... It's, it's always like, you know, I'm not an asshole, but I walk in and the writers are all sitting there. And I go, okay, I have one idea. <laughs> and then we, we start and then I just, I instinctively just follow anything. I just always follow the water, which is my, my expression in the room, follow the water. Like, what idea is juicy? And it's like, you know, and I learned from carpoolers where sometimes people go, I don't know where it goes. What are we talking about? And it's like, let's just follow it and let it burn itself out or become something. And then... It's, it's kind of like you're seducing yourself, and before you know it, a card is going up on the thing, and that connects with that, and then you walk away, and everybody goes you know, for a coffee, and then they come back, and Gary Campbell's there, and then you're talking about it, and before you know, you're back at it. So for me, I've always got a lot done, 
by not going, okay, today, here's what we have to get done. Right, okay, because that's how some people work. It's like, today we're working on episode three, and that's that. It was more a sort of, um, uh, what's the word? Uh, you, you, you just kind of evolve naturally. Like, oh, here's an idea. Maybe that'll fit in episode three. Is, is that correct? Right. Yeah, and just like, what's a good idea? And we just keep, you know, I think the thing that I, I learned that I didn't know when I first did it with Carpoolers is like how to divide a room and how to make people go do things. And I think even having taught like writers' workshops, the energy in the room always goes up when you say to the writers, okay, go write a list of funny scene uh, titles. The energy just, just goes up. And in the same way in a writer's room, even someone as senior as Gary Campbell, who's probably actually written more stuff than me, you go, okay, you've got one hour to go over on that couch and just come up with a little one-page document on this. So, you know, the thing that I had done at Carpoolers, which was the American way where there was a lot of 18 people staring at a screen this size and going, mm, I don't know, is that joke better? You know, and I think uh, the, the way the, the best rooms do it, uh, like The Office does it, I'm doing some work with Brooklyn Nine-Nine right now, and they divide and conquer. They go back and forth all day long. And that's what I learned, I think, to do this time around. Right. So it was, um, it, 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 you didn't, you must have had some general ideas in terms of, uh, season arc, I'm assuming. So you probably had the, like, 1 to 13. Yeah, and then was... you didn't have 8 and 9, and I knew that he was going to go to Vancouver at the end. Right, right. Um, but, yeah, you just, you just come up with it. Oh, someone just said spoiler. He just spoiled the end of the... He goes to outer space in the 13th episode. That ties into the Space Invaders yes, yes, episode. Yeah, yes, yes. Like, uh, like last He gets swallowed by the machine at the end. It's not so grounded after all. We thought it was fun. We used to joke. It would be fun to do a show. and Only in Canada could you do a show where in the second season you did something completely different. Right. So it would be like suddenly we come back and Ian and Shanky are time-traveling detectives. And well, that's, that's what some of our executives were saying. They're going, well, are they going to be in Vancouver for the year or two? It's like, no, they're going to be back in Bray Glen. We have, yeah, Spoiler. Um. Uh, how, how do you find putting writers together? Do you, do you have – like Gary is such a great – Gary's so specific. He's like um, he's like a puzzle man, right? Like right. Gary likes to look at a story and he can put together the elements of a story like he's putting together a puzzle. Um, uh, do you have like someone that you think is stronger on jokes? Do you think someone who's stronger on story, someone on, on character? Or do you just like, I just want to work with these people? I think I just want to work with these people. And it's like I had been told like, oh, you got to have a – when I did my first room or first couple rooms, it's like, no, you need a guy who can write jokes. And you need a guy who's really good at dialogue. I don't know if that really works. I think the most important thing when you have a group of people – and I like this, a small room as opposed to I don't know what 17 people do really yeah. in a room – is that you – you, you have to understand that what you're doing, which is it takes a long time, and that's, that's instinctive. So you find the people like Kayla Lorette, I didn't know, but once I worked with her for one day, I wanted to work with her forever because we just had our brains were in sync. So I think, I think it's that. And I've seen, I've seen writers in certain situations struggle to find their way in. And it's it, it's sad. It's like a kind of a, Into a the fly industry? hitting the lights. No, in the room. They're there, right. and you know... <laughs> And you kind of go back at night and you go, oh, eight times in a row people said his idea wasn't so good. And he's just at home going, oh, my idea wasn't so good eight times in a row. But for you, we're just going, ah, yeah, well, no, no, that one's better. Well, each room has a dynamic, right? And, and some rooms can be very yelly. Some rooms can be quiet. Some can be like somewhere in between. Um, but you're obviously the one driving the room. So you're the one 
setting the tone and dictating uh, what ideas get heard and what ideas don't. And, and so, I mean, I think it's good that you brought uh, a sort of an eclectic group together, like people right. that you knew and people that you didn't know. But you always don't know yet. I mean, like you kind of instinctively, if you taste something, you go, oh, I kind of like that or I don't like that. I think sometimes... I'm a big believer, and it was always the kids in the hall. It's like, we don't know yet. Let's, let's write this. We'll see where it goes. And we, I had something I always do with the kids in the hall. I said, okay, what's the worst idea that can, we can come up with right now? Like, what's the dumbest thing? And so you say four dumb things or one dumb thing, and maybe the second thing is kind of good. So I think, I think the hardest thing, especially in a room, because it's weird people who have their notes and they're trying to contribute, and you know, is just to take the pressure off and to take ego off. And just like, it's not it's just we're following an idea and that one we don't like and that one we do like. Yeah, no, it's never personal. It can feel personal, but that sort of, that becomes the nature of being a writer is to please God, don't take this personally if someone doesn't like your right. idea. Because God knows there's enough of it. Um, uh, sorry, I'm blanking on that. I'm trying to think of a, I'm trying to think of an interesting follow-up, but I, I kind of just want to talk about, um, you've been recently developed, you've recently developed a second season, but we don't know. Um, well, we're hopeful for our second season. CBC? Uh, um, Anybody from Sorry. CBC stand up, please? Yeah. Um, stand up, Michelle. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we're, we're poised for our next season, um, but th- there wasn't a need for it on the air at, 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 in the same way as there was because it's a weird thing that we sort of were on the small network that was that is uh, n- not so small, but is uh, Rogers or City, and then now our first season is playing again on CBC. So, you know... Uh, Starting in October 6th? Th- yeah. And so hopefully our next season will uh, be in the spring. Without... Being, it's hard to ask this question without being critical, but did you learn anything watching the first season that you thought, okay, I can do this differently in the second? Oh, I, I wanted to re-edit that whole fucking episode I was watching. <laughs> you know, it's like everything. I think you just, you know, the great thing about television and all work, even if it's kids in the hall or whatever, is like you can follow what's going and, you know, sometimes you're doing it so much that you are, are, are just reacting to inside it and you don't you can't learn from it but when when you rest later you can look back on it and go oh that's good that isn't good you know like an old script if you write a script and it's great when you're done it but six months later if you pick it up you'll you'll learn things about it because your ego has kind of gone down and yeah i i want to do lots of things differently and i learn things about story and character and blah 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 do you agonize when you're writing like do you uh, do you have the classic sort of we joked about it off the top but are you like late at night or, or are you pretty disciplined at this point? Can you I'm, get up and write five I'm hours fearless. A day? I mean, that, that's one of the good things. You know, it's like Mark McKinney is one of the best writers I know, but he doesn't think so. So it's like, oh, where should we eat? Oh, okay, we got to write, we got to write, we got to write. And I've, I, I love to write. And I've always thought that, you know, if, if I write something that isn't good, it's not my fault, it's the idea's fault. So, <laughs> you know, when I, uh, when I was doing, a sh- uh, doing my show in America, I, I talked to a showrunner. Uh, is it Greg Garcia, the guy who did? Uh, uh, yes. Yeah. Um, and and I, it was like, how do you do it? And he said, well, I get up at four in the morning. And I said, ah. Yeah. And I did. And I found myself, even with this, because we got, we got picked up June 8th, and we were on the air. We, we started shooting September 20th. Wow. That's so, about, how much did you have written? Just one pilot. <laughs> um, and it's like, I, I, I kind of enjoy getting up at 4.40 in the morning. And and pounding it out, and I don't know. I, I, I like to work, so I don't have a, oh, is this any good? Later on, I go, oh, what, oh, that sound was too loud, or whatever. But I think when you're doing it, you can't think, you can't judge it as you're doing it. That's the death of everything. But um, 
you don't agonize over the blank page. You don't have that problem. Oh, no, no. But uh, the other thing that I was going to ask you about, because we talked about this earlier, is that a lot of people don't really seem to understand how crucial a showrunner is when it comes to rewriting other people's scripts. Like, when you're in charge of a show, it goes through your hands. And I know a lot of younger writers, myself included, I've been through that, where I went, what the hell happened to my script? You, right. you changed everything. And they didn't really. They just put it more to fit their right. voice. And it's not a, again, it's not a personal thing. It's just something. It's your show. You have your voice. You want to ha- make sure that all the periods and commas and inflections are in the way that you vision it. Well, I mean, that's part of it. I mean, it's because it's, somebody has to decide. Right. You know, and I think otherwise it can be kind of lurching. And I think, you know, and even as directors, you know, when I did Carbo, or, you know, I'm, I'm, I think I'm directing a couple episodes of Brooklyn Nine-Nine in the, the Fox show. And it's like, okay, what lenses do they use? Oh, they they do overs, and then they 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 shoot things at twice, and they don't do a common master, and they like seventy five millimeter lenses, whatever. So you have to learn that they do that. I can't come in and go, let's do a dolly shot because they don't use a dolly. Right. So I think it's it's really, and I'm going, hey, I want I want to do what you guys want. This is what what do you guys want? And so I think I'll find myself within that, but it's like no, no, it's it's kind of up to you a little bit. It's a uh, it's such a weird thing being. Uh part of a bigger room. I, I'm, I'm curious to ask about the Brooklyn Nine-Nine experience, but that's not what this is about. Yes. Are, you, is it, are you having fun on it? Well, I haven't started yet. Oh, okay. just, yeah, just What's fun. Terry Crews like? No, yeah. anyway. um, sexy. <laughs> They're all sexy. It's America. <laughs> um, I'm kind of running low on questions. I feel like uh, I've, we've talked so much about this, but I, I, there's more to talk about, and, but maybe we could open it up to the audience now. What do you hmm. think? Are, yeah. are you going to? Are you putting up your hand to that we should throw it up to the audience, or you're going to ask the first question? Wait, wait, wait. Yeah. wait we have, have to get you a mic. Um, I will say before we get the question to you, there's one last thing I want to ask you because uh, I've noticed this um, as I hit 40 this year that I'm. Oh I know, gasp, gasp. Yeah. I know. <gasps> oh, he's so young. How can he be 40? We thought um, he was 50. Uh, <laughs> feels like it. I um. Uh, it's weird to suddenly be considered a senior writer. Right. I suddenly find myself talking to a lot of younger writers, asking me advice about getting into the industry. And I feel like I just started. Right. And then I look at my career and I go, no, actually, I haven't really. I have been doing it for a long time. And it is, I'm, I'm more in a senior position. It is kind of, uh, it's, it's our turn to sort of guide younger people. I have no idea how to do that. Right. Do you feel that? Do you feel like an obligation? or well, No, I actually like it now, and I think, I, I, not that I'm, I can guide anyone, because also, you know, I grew up, no one ever helped me do anything. When I directed Superstar, no one ever told me that when Paramount comes to look at your screening, that you should be nice to them and have water for them and, you know, take notes when they give you notes. You just go, oh, cool, okay, those are all your ideas, good. And then you leave. Like... <laughs> That can get you fired. Um, so I like, I like the spirit of, of artists, and I like to help them in any way I can, but I, I'm just as lost as anybody else. I'm just looking for my next idea the same way as everybody else, but I can actually talk about story and character kind of endlessly because right. I enjoy it. So it's more you can, you can sort of uh, pass on your experience. I can't, tell anybody, you know, I can't tell anybody how to make it or f- find an agent, but I can talk to them about their, their human creative spark and their honesty and their truth because that stuff's of endless interest to me. Right, okay. So 
Son. Yeah, I just wanted to ask a bit further about... Um, How you get an agent? Exactly. Yes, please. No, uh, just uh, the procurement of, uh, of songs. And I was just wondering, um, well, it's really cool to hear that you have such a personal vested interest in, uh, in the music that's, that's being a part of this or other projects. And um, I, I didn't quite understand when you mentioned, did you personally write letters as well to try and procure these? Or did you, how did I, you go about it? Well, I, I have. I mean, I think... You know, luckily Canada's small enough that the guys in the modernettes know who Bruce McCullough is or knew who Kids in the Hall was. You know, I've had, you know, I, I almost had brick in the wall and I was going to go re- meet Roger Waters no, really? in New York at one point and that was being arranged and fl- I was going to be flown in. You know, I'll do fucking anything. To, to, and I think you do that. And I've, I've had other people like write me, write me things and I'll, I'll do their things. But I think that can really help... And I'm not afraid of going to find artists at any point. And I think, you know, when you do a show or when you do your own thing, you have to do everything. And that goes beyond music. That's like... That's everything. Yeah, if you want a specific thing for your show, you're going to fight for it and try to get it. Well, I remember once my assistant, you know, I was doing ADR and it's like, I don't think Will Ferrell has his ADR. I don't think he has his ADR sheet. And it's like, no, why are you always worried about everything? And of course, Will Ferrell didn't know about his ADR. So it's like, you just worry that everything is going to go wrong or could go wrong. And you do everything to, to make it happen, which I'm happy to phone anyone or talk to anyone or talk anybody into a small job if they want to do a part on my thing and it's beneath them or whatever, I'll ask them. It is, I, it's like, the, this is this is related to that, but I always think that this industry is a bit of a miracle sometimes. I mean, not in a, you know, whatever, it's bullshit what we do, but it's still, like, the things that can stop it. So many things can go wrong to make the project fall apart. Like, one thing can, like, derail the whole project. But so many things have to go right. Well, everything is the most important thing. Yeah, at the time. That's I, the hard part. I remember the first day I shot Dog Park, and I looked at the looked at the rushes the next day, and all the background work was so horrible. All these people were just playing with their dogs like they were crazy out of their fucking minds. It's like, <laughs> when the fuck? When did that happen? And it's like, no, okay, the back, okay, so I get it. The background action can wreck your movie. Yeah. The boom can wreck your movie. The sound can wreck your movie. You know, one thing, one bad actor. You know, yeah. all that stuff. Yeah, no, and it's it's crazy how much of a juggling act it is yeah. to just make sure everything goes smoothly. And uh, it's funny because you know I've been on a couple sets where I've seen directors lose their minds, like lose it on the crew or whatever. And I go, well, you know, they're carrying eighty million dollars on their shoulders. This is more an American thing, right. but and, and I go, look, I mean, I don't think that's the right thing to do, but. Jesus Christ, have you ever had that much stress? Have you ever carried an $80 million project? Like, I haven't, and I lose it sometimes, you know? And I, Anyway. Another question. Might have been a little too personal. Someone else have a... Um, how do you know the difference between something's working and it, you're, it's not funny anymore because you've seen it, like, five or six times in the edit suite? Like... How, how do you, where, where do you... That's a good question. Well, it is a good Not question. Not that the other questions are bad. No, it's, it's so funny because I remember when we were doing Brain Candy and we'd rewritten it so many times. I remember when we were filming those scenes, it's like, did we film this scene? Because we'd read it so many times and it was kind of dead to us. I think, I mean, the great thing about TV, I think, is that it moves fast enough that you can't get truly, truly sick of it. I believe in moving fast. I believe in moving fast in writing, in rewriting, in reacting to an idea. Um, I, I don't believe in working 20 hours a day or writing for 10 hours a day. I believe in writing for six hours a day and working really hard and getting out. And I, I don't believe in over-editing. You know, I had a friend who was an editor who worked for Judd Apatow, and 
he had said, like, just try everything every way. And uh, if you have the money and the resources, fine. And maybe Judd has a brain like that. But I like to try to go toward it as fast as I can. Um, and so I don't usually get sick of stuff. Um, you can battle stuff that isn't ever quite working. But it's not like, oh, it was funny before. It's not funny now. I think I have a, a record in my head that I'll remember it was funny. Is part of that also that you just want to get home? Do you find, like, I, I, I mean, like, at a certain point, Gary Campbell told me this great story. We were working on a show, and he took a lot of flack from uh, the lead. I won't say who it was. And, uh, and it was a really bad day. And I said, how do you do it? And he goes, I learned it in the States. Five o'clock, you go home. Right. And it wasn't like, it, it didn't feel like a, um, a defeated thing. It felt like a, a way to compartmentalize your work and your home life. Like, you can't go crazy over this stuff. Oh, I know, and it's all, it yeah, I'm not, a guy, I'm not a believer in all-nighters. Right. You know, I worked with Norm MacDonald, and he said, oh, yeah, let's, let's meet at 10. I said, oh, great, I didn't know you'd get up that early. He said, no, no, 10 at night. Right. We'll have a steak, and then we'll write. I thought, I'm not fucking working with him. Yeah. Yet I worked with him. But, I mean, it's because some, I've been in some writing rooms that are very, you know, 10 to 4, 10 to 5, very regimented. You get in, you work, you don't, you don't shoot the shit that much. And then I've been working with, the, you know, with Bob and Don. It's like you show up at 11, Bob shows up at noon. We work, we shoot the shit for like an hour or two. We work for an hour, then we go get lunch. Then we come back and we work a little bit more. And it's like the most loose, casual stuff. But it's, from my experience, some of the better writing right. I've ever done. So I, there's no real specific uh, way to do it. It's just whatever well, it, works. Sometimes it's painful if you have to do a rewrite and it has to be there for tomorrow. Yeah. You know, I, I remember once when I was writing something for ABC and there was a courier waiting outside my door for it. And it's like, no, there's a courier waiting there. But we're not done. We're on page 12. He's waiting there all day. Okay. Um, but it, usually you want to take the, you know, it's when it, follow the fun too. Right. You know, we got into this for fun. Yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> we didn't get into this to, to go, fuck. You know, and I used to, I've worked with people. Oh, God, we gotta, oh, it's not good enough. We're going to work all night. And it's like, no, we don't. You know. Uh it's uh, I'll name draw. Finkelman said the most the best advice I ever got because I did the show newsroom when I was uh, in my late twenties and and I remember he goes if you ever get stressed out just remember it's a fucking TV show and right. I was like oh yeah good point um, I also watched how he dealt with executives which is, was a real learning experience yeah. don't be afraid yeah um, uh, another it, question oh. yes. Hello. Oh, you have a mic. And the, yes, they passed one to me. It's awesome. Uh, so I guess going along the question of asking that you said, I have a TV pilot that I wrote with Will Arnett in mind for yep. one of the characters. And I've got this pilot. It's got a couple of na- Canadian names attached to it already. And when I tell them, Will Arnett's for that, like in, in mind, and they're like, oh, he'd be great. So now I was not on Kids in the Hall. So right. any advice in terms of getting it to him? Do you have any tricks of the trade that... Do you know Will Arnett? Yeah, do you Will Arnett? <laughs> well, I do know Will Arnett. Oh, um, well, well, you know. well I, I think send it, send it to his people. And yeah. just a, a short cover letter and say exactly that, you know. Um, it, it's funny. Like, in the, I have pretty good representation in the, in the States, and maybe Will Arnett's managers. But it's um, – they look at everything. Yeah. Okay. You know, I mean, they don't often, you know – scripts written in blood they're not going to read or something like that. But I think some legitimacy to it will help it. Um, and mentioning the names that I have attached already. Yeah, I... I, I, I interested. 
Agents and managers read everything, they do? and they okay. have people that read for them. But I mean, there's all, it's it's not impossible to get to people. It's actually a lot easier than people think. And yeah, because I get I get some weird things that are, are sent to me, so they get to me somehow. They get to you. Uh-huh. And but also, <laughs> be professional and be brief. Okay. Like you know, um, say how much you love him, and he's the guy for it. And you, is there any way he could you could bl- pass along? You know, here's. You don't have 15 numbers that you could reach, and at midnight to 4 a.m. you can reach me at this number. Like short and uh, professional. But that's it's sort of what you were saying about the music too, because on 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 Michael we got uh, this Harry Nilsson song, and it was basically just writing a personal letter to his family. Right. And you know we didn't have the money. We just wrote a letter that said we love the song; it's perfect for the show, and we'd do anything to get it. How can we make this happen? And they were very kind about it, and we got the song. So it's. And the same kind of thing, I think, is sort of, yeah, the personal, uh, direct approach. And especially now, I mean, everybody's looking to do stuff. I mean, Will Narnett, is, obviously, is he still doing he's, that? He's just, yeah, he's still doing, doing that show. He's not working. You can yeah. Go. God. Boy, is he funny. I actually did Arrested <laughs> Development. I did a scene with him, and I, I watched him improvise. I didn't improvise with him. And I thought, fuck, he's as good as anybody I've ever seen improvise. Yeah. yeah. But I think now everybody's looking to do cool stuff, whether it's, I think we know now that, you know, um, that... It can be a little thing or it can be a big thing. Um, people do stuff. Okay. You know, uh, maybe tweet him. <laughs> you know, a couple of people have gotten me through tweets. They go, oh, here's the thing. I want to send you something. And it's like, I may, I may, he'll read his tweets. Thank you. Yeah. Another Anyone question? Else? Oh, over here. We've got, a couple, we've got several. Um, my, my question, I think, was already answered, but it was basically, can, like, do you guys ever take pitches? Oh, there you are. Oh, yeah, up there. Do I take pitches? Do you guys ever take pitches for, for projects? I don't really take pitches. I'm always interested to work with talent and on different things. But it's not like, you know, I'm endeavoring to do more. And I'm a production company, but I have friends who go, oh, I have this idea set here. Do you want to hear about it? And I go, oh, maybe I can, I can make a call for you if I like it. But I don't – I'm not – I'm not a company that sits and takes pictures. Do you have a desktop full of uh, other people's scripts that you've promised to read at some point? Well, I, are still I learned early to... on, you know, we were doing a Kids in the Hall tour, and we were doing a, a sketch called Jesus 2000. Um, and there had been a guy who came to my one-man show a couple months, and he gave me a script, and it was Jesus 2000. And I, I, he went away, and I looked, and I was, oh, fuck, it's Jesus 2000. I just wrote a sketch called Jesus 2000. <laughs> and, and then he phoned, and he said... You took my sketch, and it's like, no, I didn't take your sketch. I, so I learned, I learned then that you have to be also careful with, with ideas in, in a in a certain way when I read people's things. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's I mean, that's what the my Jesus two thousand was way better. Okay, so. some would say that's a good thing yeah. that the Writers Guild yeah. does, which is registering ideas. There, I brought it. And I boy, did we do relevant. good in the last collective agreement. Yes, and I'll pay my dues. Yes. Uh, Literally. Sometimes on time. Uh, question here. Hi. I'm just wondering how you felt um, acting in something you're also involved in creating and writing, if you found that a challenge or actually more fulfilling to do that. Well, I actually enjoyed it. I think, you know, often you're, you know, you're a guy at the monitor going, oh, okay, okay do it faster, or does the camera have to do that? And I found that it became more alive if I was in the middle of scenes with people, and I could, I think it would be kind of weird 
sometimes till they got used to it. I'd be, you know, in the middle of a scene, I go, okay, do that again. Here's a line, try that. You know, and I'd improvise for them or something. Um, but I found being inside it was, was actually more fun. And even the fact that my wife and I were a couple and we had our kids and they feel like our kids, it felt fine that we were, I was right in the middle of it. But of course, it's distracting because you want to also watch. But you can feel also what's going on. Did you have to run to the monitor after every take? I tried or? not to. You know, I, I, I think the monitor is overrated. When we did uh, Death Comes to Town, our miniseries, we didn't even have a monitor. We just sort of trusted what we saw, huh. you know. Well, there'd be five kids in the hall lined up at the monitor right. looking at everything. So, Anyone else? Yes. Sir. You just throw the mic haphazardly. Is there a subject matter or theme you haven't explored yet that you want to? N- no, not really. I mean, I just, I, I, f- I follow my impulse. I mean, there's, you know, I don't think I would do a, sh- a thing about a woman's shelter, you know, or uh, something. Sci-fi? That, you want to do a genre piece? I'd rather do women's shelter. <laughs> no, no. Um, no, I think I just, I'm not afraid of anything, but it's like, um, I just like what I like, and I'm not going to, you know. I think sometimes when you go, oh, I could write a cop show too. You know, it's maybe not as good. I don't know. Do you have other stuff that you're working on right now that's like... Oh, a ton of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, do you have any ideas percolating and that you're... Oh, yeah, I have all kinds. I, I'm always, I always have stuff. And they all fit a kind of a theme? Well, I'm interested in people. So right, it's yes. people and relationships and all, all, all that stuff. Would you ever do like a straight-up romantic comedy kind of thing? Like guy, girl. Well, that's kind of what Dog Park was. I mean, it was a weird one, but I love when they fall in love and when they say, "I'm a teenage girl too." When they go, when he says, "I love you," and she goes, "I'll take you back," or whatever it is. Yeah, I love that shit. So no, I love that stuff. Is that are you like a sucker? Do you cry at certain commercials that are just basically emotionally? Yeah, no, I can. I can cry. I can cry at weird shit like that for sure. I'll be like this, and my wife's like, "What are you doing? This is really lame." Yeah. So. No, I'm a. I, I, weirdly, I never cry at sad things. I cry at happy things. It's like when someone grabs someone's hand and runs because they're you know excited about something. I go, oh god, that's so beautiful. Which I think it says a lot about how fucked up I am. Yeah. But you know, I don't know why. I, I, but that's also the kind of stuff I like to write. It's like it's a. I like to write weirdly overcoming joyful moments. If that makes sense. Yeah. I don't know. Okay, anyway. <laughs> so this is not about me. Never mind. Uh, as, as, there must be other questions. Anyone else have... I'm yeah. assuming we're going to get the red light. Yeah. Can we take some room tone now while we're waiting for them? <laughs> um, I'm curious to know how you found your writers. Obviously, you have a long history with Paul Campbell, but how did you find Kurt and, uh, Kurt and uh, Scott? Um, through audition process, actually. Um, I, had, I had a friend named Martin Garrow. I don't know if you know him. Um, he said, hire Kurt Smeaton. And I said, okay. Once when I was, was going to buy a house, some woman on, who was doing makeup for us said, you should buy a house in Riverdale. And I said, okay. And I bought a house in Riverdale. Um, it's instinct. You meet someone and you, and you like them. you know, And um, you, you don't even have to read much of their stuff. I don't even know if I read any of Kurt's stuff. You just met with them. We just met. We talked about ideas or Kayla Lorette or something. It's just like, oh, no, I, I chemically like you guys or you people. Um, and I've, I've also hired writers that were funny, probably more in carpoolers or other things that ended up not working out because I knew they were really funny, but they didn't make me laugh. Um, I think those people make 
I always attract to people who make me laugh, even though, oh, I know that's funny, but it's not, you know. Well, because I think ultimately it's still on your shoulders. So it's about who you surround yourself with. And, and, and maybe they might not be the best fit or they're too good. of it's, it's about the environment that you're creating and whether or not you can write something out of that. Well, yeah, and a, and, a, and a group of people or people are just a, a group of people who are trying to create something. I mean, it feels like it's a big machine that you're put into, but if you go into, you know, the office writing room in the States or when it was on, it's like these are people just trying to make each other laugh, and they're all kind of similar, and, you know, that's, how I think, how you pick each other. Did you ever see there was a – there was maybe it was a web video, I'm not sure, but it was someone was showing the writing room for Seinfeld back in the day, and it was the shittiest, most dingy, uh, like – shag carpeted office on the lot right and it was just well that's where the writers are because no one no one visits the writing room so right. it was just a crappy little office and you thought wow this is like the biggest sitcom in 30 years and it's just a shitty office for writers yeah I don't so know being a writer yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> i'm saying that not a lot yeah. of thought has to go into that because it really is ultimately about the people and what they're bringing to the table and and working together it doesn't matter where they are or yeah, and it's also this thing about the writing room. The writing room starting. It's just like uh, you can have an idea, and then you can talk to a guy over the phone, and and then you send it to someone else, and then she has some notes, and then before you know it, you're off. I think I think it's great to meet all together, but sometimes there's this thing about a writing room. Oh, they're in the room. Yeah, there's no consistent uh, writing room that I've found. There's no uh, like you know. Yeah, you have cards and a board and. And that kind of stuff. And sometimes you don't. I've worked without cards or a board. People are always amazed. And say, eh, we just worked in a kitchen right. for a couple months. And we had a laptop. And then the ideas went in the laptop. But right. we, didn't, we didn't board stuff out. Sometimes you don't have to, I guess. I've never worked that way. I've, maybe it's the one thing I always want. I always want, and I learned that at SNL, if an idea was good enough, you'd kind of get a card that could go up. You have enough. Because someone would walk in and they'd go, Hey, what's Homer's Paradise about? And then you'd have to have a couple things that you could talk about. And then I also, it's like a piece I had called Angie the HIV Unicorn, which I like that idea. And it's just every every week or so, my writing assistants say, "When are we going to write up Angie the HIV Unicorn?" I say, "Oh, leave me alone." And then because it's there, it exists, and you'll it, you'll eventually write it. So, so you do like the cards? Oh, I love the cards. Right. So you like the yeah. satisfaction of pinning the card to the thing? Yeah. And like, oh, that's it's existing now. Also, if a guy wants to use the dry erase board and like rewrite it, that's a different kind of anal thing. I probably wouldn't work really well with that person. Right. And not just because of that. I think creatively we wouldn't work together that well because you just don't like dry erase boards you like cards over dry erase yeah and i I think i don't like the the brain chemistry of the person who really likes the dry erase board (laughs) i like the brain chemistry of boom boom rip that card down move them around move back there's a commitment to the cards a card is up there and it's it's semi-permanent you can take it down but it's not like a dry erase and a dry because i mean you know it's it's like typing or writing out by hand you're, you're thinking before you're doing it as opposed to the idea that I can just erase it. I got the phrasing wrong. That's not right. I can just erase it. There's a permanence to Well, the no, but the people with the dry erase board, they have to erase it, and it gets it clean again because mommy and daddy were cruel. And then you have to write it all out again, and that takes time, so you don't have to think of anything for 20 minutes. Well, everybody's waiting for you to do that. That's what, the, but that's what assistants... That's why I like having a writing assistant in the room. I let them be... Oh, you're on, so cruel. On my behalf. How did you get so cruel at 40? Because I can't draw a straight line. Yeah. I've tried, and I've done that kind of thing where you draw the lines, and they go, just let me do it. It's my job. And then they do it, and I sit back, and I go, well, okay, that's... I think we're getting the red light. Should we take one more question? Yeah, I have one more question. Yes. You young, handsome man. Oh, thank you. With the square jaw. <laughs> what, what modeling agency are you with? Dewey, Cheatham, and Howe. Ah. 
Uh, can you talk about what you had in terms of documents heading into, you know, the first day of photography? Like, what did you have in terms of, like, stories broken, outlines, scripts, and was it enough? Well, it's never enough. I actually, we had a pretty ferocious writing period. We actually had, and because I knew I was going to be in it and eventually I was going to be directing the first three, which I did, we actually had, I think, seven or eight scripts written. So it's always those last ones that are, that are the hard ones. And you think these scripts are written and they're never going to change. But, of course, everything changes all the time in television. And not just because you can't afford to, to do the car wash location or whatever. It's because you're learning stuff and the characters are changing and all that stuff. So it's not like you have a script and then you go shoot the script. It's you have the script and then you have to tear it apart because you're knowing things. And then it's like the way you've, there's no other side to that street. So we have to rewrite it. So, yeah, we had about over half the season written and it was probably just enough. That's a good answer. That's kind of a sad question to end on. Okay, let's take one okay, more one question. More. Yeah, one more. Yes. From here in the front row. Second from the front. The one. Do you prefer uh, television to film, or what's the difference between the two? Well, I fell out of wanting to do films, I think, because you spend two years with something, and then people go, oh, I, I don't know if I saw that. Um, and then you're doing post forever, and you're doing... You know, I think TV can follow... It's built for me, because I like to... What's interesting to us today? What's interesting to us this week? Um, and, of course, we're in the golden age of television. We're, you know, and all, even all... I have a couple friends who are still doing films, but it's just kind of the medium in which we're sort of communicating with each other. So I like, I like the storytelling, which wasn't natural to me. I didn't... You know, I, I knew how to write sketches. I didn't know how to write 22 minutes. But it's not a... It's a big, heavy thing... You know, this guy who I worked with, Marsh McCall, um, he said, you know, a half hour of television is like a go-kart. It's not like a big lumbering thing where a film is like... So that's what I like. So I prefer television. Are there any shows right now that you really like, that you're watching, that you think, oh, that's really well written? Um, Brooklyn (laughs) Nine-Nine. I like lots of of stuff. Uh, Yeah, Yeah. you sort of become like a sponge. You just watch everything you can. I don't watch that much. It's like... uh, you know, uh, no, there's not. There's not a ton of shows actually. <laughs> well, I'm, on that I'm excited note. about about your show coming back, though. <laughs> Woo! We'll see. Uh, well, I guess on that note, we'll end it, and people can go drink and smoke and do whatever the hell they want. Uh, and unless you have a, do you have a final thought on to right, all these young? What you know? No. <laughs> if you were Call in the audience parents. right now, watching someone. Talk about writing. What would you hope that they would say? Um, I would say, and this is my advice to young writers and old writers, um, to follow your spark and your human spirit and follow the thing that you think is interesting, and it will be. That's all I've ever done. That's a great answer. I'm going to throw down the mic now. Uh, I can't do that because it's really expensive. Um, But thank you so much, everyone. Thanks, everybody. We really appreciate you coming out. Thank you to Matt. You've been listening to Writers Talking TV featuring Bruce McCullough. Writers Talking TV podcasts are presented by the Writers Guild of Canada. All the Writers Talking TV podcasts can be found on the Writers Guild website, wgc.ca, and at iTunes. If you enjoyed the podcast, please share your feedback at iTunes or email writerstalkingtv at gmail.com. That's writerstalkingtv, one word, at gmail.com. Special thanks to Tiff Bell Lightbox, CBC Television, and Susan Cabin at Accent Entertainment. The show's technical producer is Philip Vukovic. I'm Matt Watts. Thanks for listening.